Hello and welcome to the Marvelous Unknown Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Henry, and it's my other co-host. Matthew. Uh, today, we're doing quite a depressing episode based upon disappointing uh, disappointing movies in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, been positive for quite a while. It's now time to yeah. balance it out. Last week was quite positive, wasn't it? Like having the top half of Marvel. Yes, it was. Um, so we're bringing it down this week. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you're feeling all the emotions. Yeah. Um, so first of all, do you want to go first with your pick? Um, can do. Okay. I feel like this week might be a sort of karma coming back because uh, on the on the podcast, more often than not, mm-hmm. if we have disparaging views on something, it, it's tended to be that I've liked it and you've not. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, particularly like far from home. <laughs> Whenever yeah. we disagreed, it's been like the other way around. But this time, I think it's going to be two in particular. I think it's going to be the way around. Mm, okay. Okay. So uh, I'm kicking off with um, I can't remember what year it was. I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019. I think it was 2019. Mm-hmm. And that is M Night Shyamalan's Glass. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I disagree. That, <laughs> I, I I seem to remember you saying you liked it. I did, yeah. I liked it quite a lot. Mm. I I was really hyped for this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The trailer was great. I loved the trailer. It was perfect. Yeah. The way it just... I just remember ending with him saying, first name Mr. Last name Glass. <laughs> yeah. And if you like, this is going to be like a really gritty, realistic, maybe some version of the comic book yeah. tropes. And... It's a sequel to Split and Untouchable, and it came out. I know. Oh. <laughs> you weren't a fan. Oh, it's just a, such a slog. Really? There are really? really good parts of it, and it it builds it builds suspense really well. Mm-hmm. Like I love the the opening. Yeah. Um, I can't remember that much of it. I do remember certain parts though. Um. And I remember that them breaking out of the of the the institution they're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that being great. But the finale is just such a a slap with a wet fish. <laughs> I would uh, I would somewhat agree with the last part of being a bit of a letdown, kind of. I guess um, I would agree with that part. Yeah. I mean, he gets drowned in a puddle. <laughs> he does, That's yeah. what I keep coming back to. The main guy, this un- untouchable, unbreakable, mm-hmm. he gets drowned in a puddle. Yeah, I found that quite interesting, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I liked I think the, the sequence with, um, well, the sequence from the trailer, you know, where he bends the, the steel mm-hmm. yeah. around the, the cage and and breaking out and all, the, all that good stuff. And I think there's some genuinely great performances in there. If Sam Jackson really sells it, as he always does. Always does, yeah. <laughs> and um, James McAvoy, you know, is incredible. Yeah, he's just going for it. <laughs> I just think it's such a, a random, randomly weird ending. Look, yeah. It has, like, two twists. Obviously, M. Night Shyamalan has twists, right? Yes. Yeah. It has middle name. a few twists, yeah. Is uh, the, the M, and the M at the start of his name... Mm-hmm. That's actually twist, but with a silent M. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so you have the first twist that 
um, Kevin's dad was on the train that mm. that crashed and or was blown up. Yeah. That resulted in um, Bruce Willis's character. I forgot his name. David Dunn. <laughs> David Dunn. That's it. Discovering yeah. his powers. Yeah. Which I think is a fairly good twist. Mm-hmm. There is there is this slight question of surely you would already know that. Yeah, because, kind of. Um, yeah. Glass was arrested, and it was quite public. Yeah. And because I. I loved in Untouchable, not Untouchable, Unbreakable. Breakable. I, I loved the idea of his supervillain in that he was going around causing these disasters, hoping to discover an adversary. Yeah. A worthy adversary. I think that's fantastic. I really love yeah. that. But this just does nothing with it. I feel like it doesn't build on it all, and you have this this weird militant group come out of nowhere. And be all, we stop superheroes. Way. Yeah. Look at us. We've got some fancy tattoos. <laughs> a three leaf clover. And it, yeah, it just completely it comes at a complete left field. Yeah. There's uh, nothing to suggest that that's what's going on. And the way they just get dispatched is uh, comical. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think I have to go the opposite way of this one. I really do. Um, I always found the, like the whole movie as a whole in general, I l- quite love it honestly. And I think in it's going to be one of those kind of slowly, maybe people will quite like it as time goes on, um, sort of thing. Because um, I think even you would agree that there's some there's some stuff in there that is just really good. Um, oh yeah, there is. Yeah. And I for me, I found it to be such an interesting experience in the sense that the first act of the film was very much what I expected it to be, like, the third act of the film, um, which, from then on, I kind of fell into, like, the idea that this film was going to be a bit of a literal kind of reordering of the superhero genre in the sense that it would start out with the the classing of our three main characters and villains, and then it would lead into a more, like, sort of deconstructionist sort of viewpoint of interrogating these people that think they have powers or whatever. Um and for me, the the twist at the end of like a military pseudo um, sort of thing, sort of group um, with the freely clover tattoo and all that, um, particularly for me, I found the idea so interesting because it was when you're watching that film, at least for me the first time, I was genuinely very on edge about the idea that the film was going to reveal that these people didn't have powers mm. um, and going to be like sort of a they exaggerated it in their minds. And because the movie was on their side, you agreed with it. Um, so I think the idea that the movie made me so scared of that idea, um, and made me like kind of fundamentally, fundamentally kind of look back on the past few movies in a different way was so interesting because at the end, the villain of the story was this changing office, like perspective sort of thing. Um, who I think was played amazingly by an actress called Sarah Paulson. Um, that's, ah, I think, I think we might disagree on that part. Really? Okay. Why? I think for me, one of the. Like I would say, the first act as well is the first act is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think it's really great. The second act, the slog part, and then as you said, it introduces the concept of maybe these people don't have powers. Mm-hmm. Like I seem to remember, there's like there's like a scene where um, David Dunn's looking at the door. Yeah. And he doesn't know whether he's going to break out or not. Yeah. 
I seem to remember. And it feels like it's getting it's going to get going, and then it just doesn't. I feel the ending's very flat. But on Sarah Paulson's character, I do agree that she's a great actress. Mm-hmm. But I feel like her character is the main problem with this film. Ooh, okay, really? I feel like she's such a a bland character. Mm, and the yeah. dialogue's really poor. I have to disagree <laughs> again. I mean, I, I think there's a line she says where it's like, um, she introduced herself and she says something like, I deal with people who have delusions that they're superheroes. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that's the good line. Yeah. But the rest of her dialogue yeah. and her delivery as well, I it just, um... it just grates with me. I don't know why. It's just the performance as a whole just... I yes because I, I don't know if you realise this actually because um he's in, in a new TV show at the moment called Ratchet uh, Rat, mm-hmm. what is it um which is like a prequel to the one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh film and she's oh, playing yeah. like she's playing like an evil nurse sort of character who um like kind of perverts the idea of what a nurse or doctor should be and kind of uses her power to. Um, insights sort of like these mental sort of breakdowns and these even like horrible kind of murderous sort of things and I watched one episode and for me that show is not for me I don't think I think that the show kind of um, in general I feel like it's a bit too broad and like bombastic I think it's a bit too on the nose like how evil the character is mm-hmm. um, but I feel like the, um, and I agree with you that she did great with me like as in like it was kind of like annoying for me to watch watch her but for me that was the greatest of her performance and the writing for her like for me looking having so many shots of her like this face on her entire face fills the screen and she's just saying to you that um these delusions of a higher sort of power or any sort of specialness in the universe is kind of based upon really um faulty logic and it doesn't work and that you are wrong to believe in something greater and it was sort of um for me especially being a bit, like a bit of context for me is a bit that like I do like Split a lot, but for me Unbreakable is like one of my favorite films. It still is, um, and mm-hmm. I think having that idea that well, one of my favorite films be sort of by uh, by a new context be kind of not ruined but definitely different was generally like attacking me, like literally like attacking me as a viewer. Um, so when I was watching her like sort of keep eye contact and like tell David Dunn and then for and therefore the audience I like having these um, beliefs was always wrong. Um, I generally, like, hated it, like, in my soul. <laughs> so having her at the end be a very clear sort of villain and having her being a guise for the medical system or whatever you want to kind of bring it into, um, it was an interesting idea that I feel like was mostly executed very well. Mm. Uh, like I said before, I do disagree, I do um, agree with you that the, the third act is kind of like the movie becoming an actual superhero movie and it's I don't think Emma Samalan has ever been a good action director because um, I, I have an accent <laughs> I just I forgot about this I have a, a Emma Shyamalan movie on my list at the moment um, <laughs> for the episode and one interesting of the, yeah and one of the main reasons is the accent which is, is it's not his strong suit I don't think at all I think when it comes to action he's better off in Unbreakable where we only ever see him uh, David Dunn strangle one guy and it's one yeah we do yeah um yeah, I, he... I, I, I think Unbreakable is a great film. <laughs> Same, yeah. I love that film so much. Um, yeah. And, it, and 
I do feel like he does sort of get the action right in at the start of this one. Yeah, he gets better in the start of this one. Um, but I understand what you mean. I think the action does feel a bit flat towards the end. I think it's his... Um, I think for the most part, when it comes to his actual like thriller tension sort of vibe he goes for, I think mm-hmm. his takes and his very purposeful blocking and slow revealing of information really works. Um but when you put that into a kinetic action scene with people that can walk on walls and uh, bend steel bars, it's kind of like the camera is slowly telling us information that should be telling us in a much faster way. Mm-hmm. Um, a really good example being, another, I love this film for the most part, but Signs, um, 2002 maybe movie, um, it ends with like a fight against an alien. And I think it kind of works, but it's definitely a precursor to the issue he has of action where the camera sort of like, it just, the, the, in the character's head, we get like the idea that everything that happened before comes together now. And instead of having sort of like a fast realization that has like some sort of power to it, it's still in that like mode of like thriller information being very slowly unraveled sort of thing. Um, so the camera will like glide over really slowly across the room to a baseball bat which is going to be used to kill the alien, and then the water is going to be slowly revealed. Is going to be, you know, the deciding factor of the battle, mm-hmm. um, and it all kind of feels much slower and much more purposeful than it should in some ways. Um, and I think that's definitely true of the third act of Glass, where I feel like it's it's kind of the same issue. Um, but everything else, I kind of do kind of love about that movie is the first two acts and the ideas of the third act, I guess. On the flip side, I just feel like it, it falls really flat. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not saying that from the perspective of um, I wanted it to be like a, a normal superhero film. I was looking forward to it being a different and, and to challenge those norms and tropes that we're used to. Yeah. And like you said, I think it does. The the, the question about if do they actually have the, are they actually powered? Yeah. I think that's a really good question that it poses, and there's a lot of themes in there that I really like. It's the same, I know I keep on going on about it, but Unbreakable, the themes that are playing in Unbreakable yeah. are what make what make the film as good as it is. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are there are roots of that in this one. Yeah. It has a really strong start, and there are signs that it could pick up towards the end. Yeah. But I just feel like it falls it falls really flat. Yeah, I honestly I can't really argue against it too much because I do kind of see it. Um, but for me, it just it just for the most part like eighty percent worked, uh, and I won't I won't lie that it was. It's definitely my least favorite in that trilogy, and it's not like at the top of my M Night Shyamalan list of movies sort of thing. It's definitely a mid to top kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I. Yeah, I just kind of disagree on this one. <laughs> I just really like the film, honestly. Uh, All right. Well, what's your first one then? What have you got? Um, okay, my first one is it's. Well, I think. Okay, yeah. Okay, I'll go for this one. Um, uh, Superman Returns. Um, oh, and that came out in two thousand and six. Um, and it's weird because. Obviously, when this film came out, I was six years old, and therefore the idea that I could be excited and then disappointed by a film that had action in it would be kind of an 
idiot sort of thing. <laughs> um, it was at that time for me a great film because I had a guy that flew around and all that stuff. Um, so, but I think over time and going back to the film, I think I feel like every time I go back to this film, I like it less and less. Um, I used to think quite a while ago that it was some sort of like underrated sort of gem. Um, but every time I go back to it, I have to admit that I kind of I kind of lose the the will to fight for it. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of like a I want to I want to praise it for, in some parts of being like a a slow moving story that's a bit subversive kind of and a bit more concentrated on the character of Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Brandon Ralph as the main the hero Superman um, is I think very good. Um, and he's came back recently. And I think it's it's kind of proven with that him with him coming back how how good he was that everyone was really excited about it. Um, but yeah, for me, it's a real mixed bag of a movie that's so. It I think the main problem is Lex Luthor and just everything he's doing is so meaningless. It's it's almost funny how disconnected he is from the rest of the movie, but he's also the main point of the movie. <laughs> uh, can you can you never much of this about this film? I remember so little. Yeah, I remember it's... there's a boat in it. Yeah, there's a big and the plane sequence as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, so yeah, there are a few highlights in this film, and I often will rewatch this one scene from it, which is the return of Superman in the plane cat, um, which is just a great sequence for so many reasons. But I think aside from that, and a few bright spots where we really get to see the humanity of Clark Kent, and we get to see the the sort of romanticism of the Donna Superman movie has come back again. Um, but other than that, I do feel like this movie just falls flat in every other way. Like, action-wise, once again, action-wise, I think this movie, aside from the playing cat, is very much... It isn't... It doesn't have any sort of strong, sort of foundational kind of we're doing this action scene now. It's kind of like... I don't know, it just feels like it's him in a montage every once in a while who and he saves some people from very um not I don't, I wouldn't say like normal situations but very kind of not in not as engaging as they could be like um sequences. Mm-hmm. So like um the ending of the movie is mostly just him lifting a big thing <laughs> um lifting a big rock into the sky and it's it's kinda like, oh well I don't really know what you're experiencing here because I don't really know what it's like to be this this much full of strength and I don't really know what so kryptonite does affect you but isn't affecting you right now because it's the end of the movie I, I don't know it's weird <laughs> um, and overall I just think the romance this every time I watch it it's so it's so flat and I don't really feel the chemistry that I feel between Christopher Reeve and um, Margot Kidder or um, Amy Adams or Henry Cavill I don't really feel the same level of um, interest between the two um and I mean, even aside from that, to go behind the scenes, I do feel like the the reputation of the director and the main villain is very much <laughs> not a good thing, and it kind of it kind of paints like a very bleak sort of this was a bad production when you think about it <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and plus, on another side, this is the fact that Brian Singer went on to he didn't make X Men Three and decided to make this film, which in turns fucked up both franchises really because <laughs> like I'm, 
yeah, like, I imagine at the time people were like, oh, we got we got the X-Men guy to make a new Superman film, that's going to be great. And then instead they got a bad Superman film and X-Men 3 got fucked. <laughs> so, like, it's kind of like, uh, no one came out of the divorce well. <laughs> it's kind of a mess of, like, a situation and a movie. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like it it needs re- a redraft, like, four more redrafts and some more editing and some more, some more, like, conceptual new ideas in it um and i i honestly if someone decided to bring back uh brandon ralph's character in a new actual film instead of the tv show i would be interested um i don't think there's anything wrong with his performance or with the idea of bringing bringing back the donna universe at all mm-hmm. i uh, but yeah how do you feel about this movie i again i didn't really remember it that well yeah, I can't say I've seen it a handful of times. Like, there are certain sequences I remember, like the the, the um, plane catch, and most coming back to me. Like I think, don't they use um, Marlon Brando? Yeah, they do for a little bit for the Fortress of Solitude. Crystals. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a thing with the bullet. Yeah, in the eye. Have, yeah. Um, I remember uh, bald Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Yeah, our choices. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, it's one of those films that has a really unique look to it, though. I yeah, I would agree, but I don't like the look. It's a unique, yeah. def, but I don't like it. <laughs> it's very, it's it's very styled on the Donna Superman. Mm-hmm. Like the suit but, is very simplistic. It's very, it, it's pretty much the same as the, the yeah. one worn by Christopher Reeves, which is odd when you consider around that time you have films like X Men and Spider Man mm-hmm. that aren't as you know they're they're, they're streamlined they're cooler in a way yeah like if uh, you watch a superhero film from the late 90s or the early 2000s you have this very early 2000s look to it yeah definitely like black black leather jackets in x-men <laughs> yeah and then to have this very simplistic but yet quite colorful original superman suit mm-hmm. it's a very unique unique style it's very it's almost nostalgic. Yeah, it kind of is. It has one step. It has like one foot in the past, definitely. Um, but I don't know if that's a good thing. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree that the film has a certain look to it and a certain nostalgic vibe to it. But also, I think they kind of ruin it at the same time because uh, the suit is yes, very simplistic and very comic, um, sort of Donnerverse accurate and all that. It's just that. They made like the the red instead of being red, it was like a brownish sort of maroon color. Yeah, <laughs> um, and the S symbol is like engraved into the entire suit. So like, if you get like a closer picture of it, you can see like tiny little S's out everywhere. Um, and oh, I didn't yeah, know that. yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> um, and plus, the color grading of the film is very weird. It's mm. all in this brown sepia tone world, and it's. It's uh, it's kind of disgusting sometimes because because I, I it's it disturbed me so how so much how the film looked that I went back to watch one of the trailers just to see if there's any sort of difference and one of the first trailers like the film looks great like it looks like a it has like a lot of depth to it and a lot of pop it has that sort of done uh, sort of lights had like this weird sort of um, blurry effect um, and there was a lot of like dark contrast and stuff like that. Um, but looking, you can compare. You can even compare it like side by side, and it's in Superman Returns trailer. It looks like a 
like a real film. I don't know. It's weird. Um, and then you watch the actual version that came out of theaters, and it's mostly just done in the. It all has this like overlay, not even like color grading ingrained into the actual image. It's more like an overlay of like brown teal sort of. Mm. Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> um, it, it it does actually look like the CW shows. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly the more recent ones. If you look at like if you, if you compare this um Brandon Ruth Superman suit to the one worn by um the one in the Supergirl mm, series. Yeah. I'm just putting it up on my phone so I have a reference. <laughs> I know what you mean. Supergirl. Yeah, Supergirl. Yeah. They're very they're not the same. They kind of are, yeah. It's yeah, they don't feel like a Either a 2006 version or even like any sort of new classic version, it just feels like the same thing again, but uh, and muted down in color wise. It's yeah, it's and aside from that, even like the the actual arc of the character um, and the story he goes through is very. It's like a pond like a pondering movie where <laughs> there's a lot of this him just thinking about things but never really acting. Um, so. It's a lot of like the depressing sequences that I do think are quite admirable for actually doing to begin with, but I just don't think they translate well when you're telling a story that relies so much on plot, so much on plot and navigation and sort of dramatic choices, where your character is mainly kind of just being sad and flying around in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, because I even once I like I watch a scene from the movie and I'll be very like moved by it. I think by itself having a sequence that's very slow, ponderous, and sort of on the nature of being such a god among men, but you're just a guy, you know, sort of thing, um, is it's honestly quite emotionally like heartbreaking to watch. But having a like, by the way, this film's three hours long. Um, yeah, it's a long one. <laughs> it's three hours long, and for the most part, it's just him kind of being uh, sad, but not in like any sort of meaningful way of like, um, like uh, you could say that's Final Two is for a sad movie because Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker is. For the most part, very sad. Um, but the difference between that and this is that I feel like in Spider-Man Two or any other film that has any sort of sad main character is that they are experiencing constant changes that re- that require you to be sad, that require like a sort of reaction that would make sense in that way. So the film is constantly making choices where the impact from that choice is him having to just just like live with it and be depressed about it. Um, however, I feel like in this movie we get from the very get go. The, the playing field are going to be the status quo and that status quo is very sad and that's the entire three hour movie though just this very status quo from the get go sadness <laughs> um, and it doesn't always it doesn't always resonate as well as it could do um, yeah it's a mixed bag for me and I don't every time I watch it I like it less and less mm. um, and I kind of I'm so glad that we have the new version um, Henry Cavill and the idea that, because I think he's um, Henry Cavill is like a bit of news recently that he's going to be in more films now, like there's a deal being made. Um, yeah, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, because I, I must say, I must say, I adore the Zack Snyder uh, interpretation of the character. I am very excited to see uh, um, Henry Cavill be that character, but with a different director. Um, I can't wait to see what he's like in a maybe like a more of a pop cult, like more of like a a pop world, and compared to the Snyder movies. Like uh, more like the world in Shazam. Yeah, yeah, that. Um, and I can't wait to see more from him. And I think that he's definitely the 
it's taken him a while to actually engage with audiences. Like, I don't think Minus Steel out the gate made everyone fall in love with the character, but I do feel over time it has slowly connected much, much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he will literally define a generation of this character. Um, so I'm excited for the fact that it got better after this film. <laughs> um, so yeah. I honestly, I can't really, I, I can't really recommend that anyone watches the film unless they really want to. You know, it's one of those kind of, it happened, it's long, <laughs> it has a few good sequences, um, but yeah, it's not worth it for me. What's well, that? Yeah. Superman Returns. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, what, do I, what do I want to go for? Yeah, all of do I stick ones. with do I stick with DC? <laughs> do, do I stick with DC? You can do I go do. for a spy film? Oh, or do I go for a film that was quite simply marketed terribly? Uh, spy film. <laughs> spy film. Yeah. All right. So my pick is Spectre. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So. Craig Bond has a bit of a weird pattern going on. <laughs> he does. So we have we have Casino Royale, great introduction. Mm-hmm. Then have Quantum of Solace, wet fart. Yeah, definitely. We then have Skyfall, great yeah. film. Probably probably Craig's best. Maybe. If Maybe. I'm honest, yeah. I think it might be. We then have Spectre. <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. you have this you have Skyfall which mm-hmm. in a way would be like a perfect ending yeah because I, I, I think that film's great I think it's it's a long one yeah. but it feels like a really personal film yeah to James Bond it's like a, a, it's like it feels it doesn't feel like the the older films which I'm really not keen on same. <laughs> Most Bond, in fact, all Bond films prior to Craig, I, I if it's on TV, I will skip. I'll flick past it without even a second thought. Yeah, I can't. But, yeah, I, I did the exact same. <laughs> and and in those other older ones, it just feels like a really pulpy. We're on one adventure, and nothing really matters to him. He doesn't matter. He doesn't care if any of the characters die. Mm-hmm. Um, they just mean nothing to him, and the adventure has no real personal weight for him. Yeah. Whereas I feel like Skyfall, you have the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. It feels like an actual growth, an actual development for the character. It feels like we're learning anything, you know, like compared to the twenty other films. <laughs> yeah, um, we see we see that he actually cares about the people around him. He actually cares about something. He's not doing it because he thinks it's cool. Because a lot of the time, if you look at like Sean Connery or Roger Moore or any of them, he's completely just not bothered by anything. He's just smirking his way through it. Yeah, which is odd because and as well, I still find that odd odd now that legacy in that when Daniel Craig. Bond actually cares about something. It still actually feels a bit odd. <laughs> so I'm just yeah. so used to James Bond just not caring at all mm-hmm. and just cripping his way through it all. Yeah. And I, I just, that's why I probably just love Daniel Craig is it because it just feels like he actually cares. Yeah, it feels like he had he has some sort of emotional anything going on. Honestly, um, yeah. And yes, yeah, so, so in, anyway, in Skyfall you have this really personal film. Mm-hmm. And then you follow it up with Spectre, 
which which should be and again a really more personal film mm-hmm. like you have you have his new love interest who he seems to care about or he's supposed to care about even yeah and you have this this version of blofeld who is supposed to be really personal to him yeah but it just doesn't feel personal yeah the film feels entirely impersonal honestly it um it, it, it feels really it, it does feel like the other ones in the it's just a, an action set piece after action set piece yeah like the, like the sequence i always come back to in my mind about inspector mm-hmm. is where he breaks out of the facility there's that whole nonsense with the drill yeah which again it feels a little too again that that drill thing where it's like if I drill into this part of your head, you'll forget her face. <laughs> yeah. It feels it feels oddly old Bond. Mm. Like, yeah, the this version of Daniel Craig, the gadgets are there. But that kind of level of machine just feels... It feels Sean Connery strapped to a chair and a laser beam running towards him. It, yeah, I feel like the Bond series, more than any other series, I think, has a problem with being the past over and over again. Um, uh, it's, yeah. Because, I mean, I yeah. think um, a big point in this film, I think you'd probably agree, is the reveal that the, the villain is Blofeld, um, which holds no meaning in this actual story. Like, having the main villain be the guy with the cat and the weird eye, but not actually be the cat with the weird guy, um, is it means nothing. Like, this film, it all means nothing. <laughs> and it... it... It it tries to combat that by the whole he's actually his brother. Yeah. And it just it feels really flat. Like I, I have no problem with them going for Blofeld. Because I, I mean I think Christoph Waltz is an amazing actor. Mm-hmm. Um and I think he could pull off any role. I think he's perfect as a Bond villain. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm actually looking forward to seeing him again in um No Time to Die. Same, yeah. And I actually think there's really nothing wrong with him in this film. I think he's great. I think his characterization of Blofeld is great. Mm-hmm. And I have no problem with him being there. It's just that... And, and also, I do feel like it's a natural progression to have him have this head of this anti-spy agency, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they can't... I feel like they they struggle with the idea that he has to be camp. <laughs> really exaggerated. Yeah. Like a lot of old Bond films are they, you know, they're, they're exuberant, they're over the top. And I think it struggles to shed that. It, yeah, it does. It does. It um Yeah, I feel like it has this um this weird notion where uh, when it when it was like leading leading, uh, leading up to the actual release, I remember them saying quite a lot that they were like kind of making like an homage to the older films and like the Roger Moore sort of films. And to me that this rings really hollow. Like I cannot get my head around how Casino Royale introduced a very much a new bond. And this new bond was very much its own new thing that only Craig could be. And from that they made a sequel. And granted, yes, the sequel wasn't very good. Quite much was a very much a messy sort of weirdly done movie. Um and then Skyfall came about, and it was very much a reinvigoration of the character. Um, and I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say it's like a reboot of the character, but I would say it's more of a, a slight reinvention. Um, 
but it's still that same grounded, gritty, sort of emotionally told story mm. that Casino Royale was. So having Spectre out of no out of nowhere become a classic Bond adventure where the character just has no real meaning and he kind of just sorts out a new problem and there's some action set pieces and that's really fine and like it's yeah it's kind of feels like a, a sort of betrayal of what came before um yeah it does it feels so because a lot of the action sequences they feel not, not they don't feel real yeah but they feel a bit gritty and a bit rough and tumble kind of thing if you know what i mean yeah yeah like daniel craig his bond is a unit no <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> he absolutely is uh, um, and and while he does have that sort of steel in in the gunfight, or whatever, mm-hmm. for me the thing that feels most odd about Spectre is when they escape that facility. Yes, and it's literally just explosions happening. It's just him just walking through shooting people. Yep. There's no he... sense of like walking cover to cover, checking your corners mm-hmm. as this style of Bond would do. I mean, yeah. I feel like that's already been fixed. In no time to die. Yeah, I get because, that. Because there's a sequence where I think it's Daniel Craig and um Lashana Lynch's character and moving through like uh, some catacombs or something. Yeah. And you can see the way they're moving, like they're checking corners and mm. they're not just walking through shooting people when they see them. And also Bond's getting hurt in that new trailer. Um which I think is a definitely a thing in this film where he doesn't get really get he doesn't get hurt at all. There's no sort of physical or even mental repercussions of any choice that he makes um, mm. and yeah that, that that sequence is very much a highlight for me where i remember being in the cinema and i couldn't get my head around what that's what that sequence was meant to be um i was because i was thinking maybe it's meant to be like a whole like a homage to the old films where bond would just walk through um but it doesn't work and that's why we changed it <laughs> um it's why i don't care about the old ones because it's so it's built towards the idea of having a male protagonist that's so, so, so like um, he's more of a an icon than an actual person. Um, mm. And even for that, I wouldn't mind that. But for me, I think that I would go far and say as Bond is actually a bad icon in general. Like he's such a an unemotional, uncaring, like unempathetic, and generally kind of like a toxic sort of personality is in general. Um, He's what, not a good man. He's not at all. He's horrible. And watching him be idolised and the films because sort of be on his side and sort of agree with anything he does is, honestly, for me, very annoying. <laughs> I find mm. it the same way. You Like, honestly, I can't get my head around it. And seeing Casino Royale and him kind of soften to the idea of being an actual human being and then Quantum of Solace even exploring his grief and Skyfall exploring his past and his new sort of is um him being an old dog in a new world sort of thing. Mm. Uh, it's, it's like um, yeah, I, I, I can another spy film that's supposed to be like a homage to um old spy films. I think we talked about this recently. Mm-hmm. Is the the Kingsman sequel? Mm, yeah. In the well, the, the, the biggest problem I have with this film again, that's another film I found very disappointing. <laughs> same, same. Um, but at the end of the film, they well, the, the film establishes Pedro Pascal's character, mm-hmm. and he sort of becomes a bit of a villain by the end. But he has like perhaps one of the more more solid backstories of the entire thing, and he's like portrayed to be a more sympathetic villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they 
They just blatantly kill him by putting him through a, a, a mincer. Yeah, they do. Yeah. It's... And for me, that's just like the ultimate symbol, similar to the, the gunfight in Bond escapes the facility inspector. Mm-hmm. Of going back to the old way of them just not caring about what they're doing. Yeah, it's like if 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 that happened, if Bond had to do that in Skyfall, mm-hmm. there'd have been a moment where he sort of slumped by and was sort of maybe full of regret that he'd just thrown a guy through a mincer. Yeah, but that's I... just not there. And yeah, that's that's the problem with paying homage to those older films is that people tend to idolise those older Bond films when really they're not very good. They're not, honestly. I've... And they have a massive problem with like consequences. <laughs> Bond is never affected by anything yeah. that he does in those old films. Absolutely, yeah. Um, whenever I try to watch the one of the older ones, even to a certain extent the Prius Boston ones, which are kind of a bit better for me at least, because I can kind of appreciate the the imagination behind those movies, which was very much a big budget <laughs> extravaganza. Um, but even then, I couldn't. I always try to see why people, people like them, um, and I can never do it. <laughs> it's it's so difficult to do because it's so it's so uninterested uninterested in anything it's doing. Um, and even then, I mean, you could make an argument that it's a similar sort of thing to Mission Impossible, aside from the fact that for me the important distinguishing factor is in those movies the main character, Ethan Ethan Hunt, which for me commercial opinion i guess is a much better spy protagonist than james bond has ever been um but it goes through so many changes and so many so many beats of the acts and stories where he actually is affected by what's happening and he gets hurt he, he doesn't always win he has like some sort of like tenacity to him where he won't give up even though he should, probably should um he cares a lot about the team he's with um he has a wife, he has an ex-wife, he has a new love interest that's generally like quite heart-wrenching to watch him kind of like pull away from her. And even outside of that, the actual film's getting made, they're always with the intention of having the director be uh, the primary force behind them. Um, whereas you go back to the first 20 films of Bond franchise, it's all um, like second unit directors that are just doing the entire film. It's all kind of like generic people that yes men directors that will just do the film for money um and that's not to say that they won't there's not some special kind of sequences in those movies that are well directed but it's to say that the films aren't, aren't interested, interested in the filmmaking process at all it's more so the spectacle of just a character who can just walk through the entire film um and it doesn't work for me whatsoever <laughs> uh, and spectre is a symptom of that happening again for some reason, I don't know why it happened. Why we're we doing this again? I hate it so much. I know. Um, yeah. I think uh, the overall symptom of the scale, um, the disappointment of uh, Spectre is that because um, Sam Sam Mendes is really Sam Mendes. Yeah. Who did this one and Skyfall? Obviously, he recently did uh, 1917 as well. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the posters at the time, I don't know if it was different, but him in Britain. Uh, if you look at a poster for 1917, it would say on the front of it, from the director of Skyfall. <laughs> no mention of Spectre. Don't mention it. <laughs> Move on. Uh, yeah, and another little problem I want to bring up as well, because um, I do find it quite interesting. Um, 
the Bond franchise in general, even the older Craig ones, kind of like are following trends where they don't really make the trends, they just follow them. Um, so even Casino Royale, for as good as it is, it is sort of following the trend of the Bourne movies, or um, Fessy's Quantum Sauce is very much following the, the trend of shaky cam action. Um, mm. And Skyfall, like, once again, is kind of taking the trend of the Dark Knight and having a villain who kind of um, wants to get captured and is a, a sort of chaos to the whole actual theme of the movie. Um, and Spectre, yeah. I think, is the worst, like, easily the worst example because it's so empty, is they try to make the Bond films into a universe. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think Blofeld's trying to be some sort of, like, I I made the, the villain in the first movie you were in and I made the second villain in the third villain. <laughs> And yeah, it's true. Yeah, and it all just it it rings so hollow because you know that's not that's not the plan. It never was. And on top of that, it doesn't even matter. Like the reveal of that doesn't make any sense and it doesn't even make any emotional impact because sure you order the people to do this, whatever, but like we're over this now. It's been three movies since Casino Royale. Um and you being the actual villain of the all the villains doesn't really care or matter. Um so having this very fake, oh, we're a cinematic universe now, is so, it's so grating. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> oh, I hate that so much. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Do you have another one? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so going back to the sort of, the whole mishap with Superman Returns, kind of. Um, I want to talk about the Dark Phoenix movies, both of them. <laughs> In oh, both one. of them. Yeah, because they both got many many problems um i think after i watched the, sec- the second version in 10 years um <laughs> i i re i didn't really i read for the first time the comic book the actual saga itself um and it it struck me how much i just don't know about x-men because i just don't i only i've only seen the films um and i think for the most part that kind of rings true for most of the comic book universe where I kind of secondhand hear what's happening in the comic books. I don't really know it. Mm. I read in my entire twenty-year lifetime probably about fifty comics, um, which isn't much. Anything about it compared to what I could have like read in like twenty years. Um, and I, but I've always, I've always wanted to read them, and I've always wanted to be inter- interested in the big ones and seeing why why the movies sometimes do get it, do get it well or don't get it well or at all and reading the Darth Phoenix comic book storyline for the first time I was struck by how much it was it was so like grand and so large and so much of it was based upon the soap opera sort of style of X-Men comic books which I had which I didn't really know until recently which was that the X-Men comic books more than anything else are soap operas that are very much will and will and what they like will and what they like relationships and drama and like people slapping each other because they cheat on the boyfriend <laughs> it's very much a, a grounded world of people that are just people um mm. and it's a big cast it's very colorful and the costumes are all big and weird and individual and the world is very bright and there's a dinosaur land and there's a uh, people called the um Oh, there's a group of people called something something. <laughs> um Hell's Hell's Circle, Hell's Hell something. And they all wear Victorian outfits and are all mutants that have like powers that are like psychological and there's a whole underground circle of them. And it's it's so wacky, but it's so like navigated through with the characters so well. 
And I think having that, reading that comic and realizing how much they relied on Scott and Jean as a relationship, as a relationship, and the history of Professor X and his sort of hubris, um, it was so interesting to read and be generally like really, really enthralled by the entire experience because like that comic book ends on an alien planet <laughs> where big wars coming out because of Jean Grey destroying so many planets. Um, it's so big and goofy and but heartfelt. And it's so great, honestly. I was so surprised by how much I actually loved the comic. Um, so going back and watching these two interpretations, interpretations of that of that comic book, I couldn't, I could not bring myself to even remotely like them, <laughs> um, because they're so, oh, they're so like surface level, like ah, oh, they're so, especially the third one actually, like the last stand, the third one in two thousand six, it's it's an action thriller movie that's doesn't have the depth of the second movie or even the first one it's it's mostly kind of bland it's and also the storyline of gene gray becoming the phoenix is mostly a, the bleep the, uh, the b plot um instead they shove in the whole cure for mutants in it um and it kind of brings up a bigger issue i have with the entire there's sort of like I don't know, it's a weird thing that happened for quite a while um, until the MCU, where people would take a comic book storyline that was called a saga, which implies a pretty big storyline, mm. and they would go, okay, we're going to give it one two-hour movie. Um, so even Civil War, which is pretty much a big kind of saga, that's like a two-and-a-half-hour movie that has a lot of movies setting it up, um, and some movies that even go into the impact of the movie. Um Infinity War, Endgame, that's a, that's a saga. That's a five-hour movie cut in half. <laughs> um, and, but with Dark Phoenix and especially the second interpretation, it's just another story that happened. <laughs> um, it's kind of like a a big letdown, no matter how you look at it. Um, it's sort of just, this character says, oh no, she's gone evil and uh, we'll fix it. <laughs> um, which is just a big waste of time compared to the grandness of this comic book storyline where she literally like eats up planets and then therefore destroys alien civilizations because of her because of her powers um and therefore ruins the possibility of being human ever again and therefore losing scott and Mm -hmm. all the x-men which was generally done very well but especially in the second the second version we don't really see her bond with the students at all like it's mostly very much implied, and the Scott and Jean relationship is done off screen. Because um, in Apocalypse, we don't really get to see them be a, be student, students together for very long. It's very short and kind of like they're going to be students for a bit, and then they're going to be heroes by the end doing a big battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in this movie, going into it, where they're just all of a sudden they're all best friends and students and leaders and all this sort of thing, it's kind of just it's very much like a whiplash moment. And then in the third, the last stand version, it's mostly just, well, Wolverine, he kind of likes her. Um, he's a bit sad that she's dead. Oh no, she's back. Oh, evil. Oh, she's, not, oh, she's evil. <laughs> um, and for me, even though I love X-Men 2 and X-Men 1, I, a weak part for me was always the Wolverine Jean and Jean like relationship. It always felt a bit neat, like pointless. Um, I kind of like a love triangle more than anything else, um, which is very much 
if not done well, it can be very grating, like you said. Like it's it's kind of like a experience that's very much ah, we don't need this <laughs> uh, sort of thing. And I feel like these two versions of the storyline are very much kind of last minute put together for no reason. Like I feel like an iconic almost part of um, the last version is um, the the <laughs> the Jessica Chastain character, um, the alien. Which, by the way, yes, aliens are in the X-Men universe now for the first time in the movies. And uh, do they care? No. <laughs> it's so weird. That at the end of the movie, these people that um, have no idea about alien life see aliens and go, huh, <laughs> and just move on. It's it's just like a... Uh, it's so weird that uh, it's not a good. And they try to make the... The last, like the last version, more personal, more grounded, but that kind of feels like a bit of a um, kind of like it's going against the entire point of the storyline to begin with because it's very big in general. That storyline, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I just don't. I feel like it's a very much a symptom of just rushing stories out to be like the best stories that we can do because it's the most famous one and not the actual writing of the story is good. Um, and I I always hate watching it now more than ever because I've read the actual comic book storyline now and it's very much it's very good. <laughs> uh, and watching it be played out in bland ways and such meaning, meaningless sort of stakes of like Wolverine kind of likes a uh, Scott I guess likes it but we haven't really seen that. Uh, Professor X is kind of a dick but not really. He's got nothing to do with the actual story going on for the most part. Um, Jean is not a character for the most part in any of the movies so why is she also the main character um the soap the soap opera quality is not in the movies very much so why do i care about the very grounded like like relationships that are going on um yeah and i just i wish they were better because i don't think we're going we're going to get another version for a long time you know like because it's been done twice now and not very good both times so I feel like we're not going to see this storyline ever happen for a good 20 years, maybe, or 10 years. Mm, I feel like that's why they've, they're not rushing into the X-Men. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, how do you feel about the X-Men coming to the MCU and how, compared to the Fox like version, how do you feel about that in general? I, I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think they could do... I mean, they, they, have, they have a problem right off the bat. In yep. the, how to introduce the characters? How the hell do you do it? <laughs> because you know Xavier and uh, Lencher, yeah, they're both people who have been mutants all their lives, and the whole point is that they are the mentors and the leaders for these different groups of mutants. Yeah, how do you how do you have that in? Yeah, and the the big point is that everybody hates mutants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do you? How do you bring that in? And how do you bring that into a universe where everyone is a superhero? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's. I mean, the only, the only way I could maybe think of it working is that. Um, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> I mean, because you could have it in that when the 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 mutants are created when from the people that are snapped back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean, like a proportion of the people that were snapped and were brought back now have a mutation in their DNA. Yeah, but if that happens, how are you going to do Lencher and Xavier? 
Yeah, how are you going to do that? Like I said, they've been mutants all their lives. Yeah, and so can't just you can't just create Xavier's mansion in in a year. (laughs) Yeah, it has to be something that's been there for a while. And Uh, unless you have it in the a small percentage of the population are mutants anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, it's just there's more of them now, and that there's more people going to the Xavier's school. Yeah. Um. I have, I think, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was something in the, there was a set picture from Falcon and Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. and there was a flag or something in the background, right. and the flag was for the, um, a place called Mandrapore, I think, right, which is supposed to be the island that Lencher sets up for his people, for oh, his section yeah. of mutants. I think, I think the island in Dark Phoenix. Yeah, is it, I think that like. I think it's called Geonosha or something like that. Is it? Uh, is it? <laughs> um, I can't remember what it's called, actually. Um, what? I'm just going to Google this. Mutant flag, the... um, falcon and winter soldier. <laughs> <laughs> it's called something like that. I think it's very much a, um, a somewhat similar name because I think Dr. Doom has Latveria as his country. Yeah, of area. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the only way that I can imagine them doing X Men, but they have the, the history, the history that they have in the comics or the new the storyline is if they just pretend or not pretend, but like just have them in their own other pocket of the multiverse, like an actual like whenever we're in the X Men movies, we're in a different we're in a different world sort of thing. Mm. That's the it's a, so it's a flag of Mandrapore, which is an island off Singapore, which was the ho- what, which was once home to Charles Xavier's mansion that housed the mutants. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So they could be doing it in in the TV shows at least. Mm. Yeah. I remember there was some there was news that um, the Captain Marvel sequel could have um, Rogue in it. Oh yeah, could do. Yeah, that was that was a while back. Though I've heard nothing nothing since. Because yeah. since then, there's been rumours that every superhero under the sun's appearing in Captain Marvel too. <laughs> yeah, that's very much true. Yeah, but uh, now 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 every superhero under the sun's appearing in Spider Man Three. So <laughs> yeah, and I'm not happy about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like you said, there could be. You could introduce into the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. Yeah. Because I feel like I feel like introducing something to the multiverse is it's it's a one trick thing. Yeah, it kind of can't yeah. you can't do Spider Verse multiverse and bring the mutants through the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like you can only do one. Otherwise, yeah. it just loses its effect. It kind of gets to do anything now. Um... And maybe even characters that die don't really matter anymore because we can just get another version from a different universe. Um, yeah, there's got to be some weight attached. There's got to be some sort of consequence. Yeah. Um, um, but I think I think if if they are going through this Mandrapore route, mm-hmm. I think you could see it in that the Xavier and his mutants have been on Mandrapore since the very beginning of the universe. Like a Wakanda sort of situation. Yeah, just that nobody knows about it. And then from there, you could you could introduce maybe um, I don't know you could introduce more people and mutated because of the snap. Yeah, 
maybe. I thought you could you could do it in the um. Maybe there were people were aware of mutants and they disliked them. Yeah. But somehow Xavier used the machine to wipe memories. Nearly, yeah, yeah. Of mutants, but because of the snap, more people are mutants, so he can't wipe that. I don't know. I think it's really difficult. I mean, it's not. It's not a problem, is it? <laughs> it's, no, it's not. Um, yeah. I yeah for me it's uh, yeah and I go out in the dark Phoenix I just don't feel like yeah the, they are the biggest problems in the the Fox version of the character because it's not it shows the of them not really caring about the actual dynamic between the characters very much mm-hmm. uh, it's more so the big themes about class and gender and race and stuff like that and it's done usually very well. Um, but when it comes down to a story that has its characters, characters at the forefront, it's very much a last minute. So, well, Jean Grey is his character now. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, sort of thing. Um, it's disappointing. I don't like it. I hate them. <laughs> I did actually have... I had X-Men Apocalypse on my list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I feel like the points that you've said apply to that as well. Yeah. And that film's way too big for some reason. Like, it's too big... <laughs> Mm, yeah, I feel like I just feel like it's really odd that they continued that side of the universe after Days of Future Past. Yeah, it's it's a good ending, isn't it? <laughs> mm, yeah, it just but as well, it just it doesn't make sense. Not really, none of it makes sense. Timeline makes no sense. Um, <laughs> do, you want, do you want to move on to your next one? Oh, okay. Um. Uh, which one do I go for? <laughs> I'm going to make you choose again. I'm going to say, I'm gonna go back to the options I gave you before. Okay. Poor marketing. Actually, I'm going to introduce a new one. Poor marketing, mm-hmm. DC, or a really old film. Oh, okay. Um, uh, poor marketing. Poor marketing. Yeah. Right. Disclosure, full disclosure. <laughs> I don't dislike this film at all. Oh, okay. I in fact think it's a good film. Okay. But I believe that it cask it it falls under the category of disappointing. Right. Mainly because it the film was marketed completely differently. Yeah. Okay. It's probably isn't going to be a big point. But that film is Black Klansman. Oh. Okay. Okay. So the marketing for this in the trailers, mm-hmm. they made this out to be a comedy. Yeah, they really went for that, didn't I'm they? I'm exaggerating this. They they picked up the whole thing of, ha ha, how could a black person infiltrate the KKK? Yeah. And it sets up a tone. I don't even know how to describe what the tone would be, but it a quicker, satirical type thing. Yeah, definitely. Which is not what this film is. Not at all, no. <laughs> this is a dead serious. Mm-hmm. Almost biopic type yeah. thing. It's uncomfortable as well as what's that film. It is. It's a really yeah. deep thing. And I feel like a lot of audiences will have been knocked for six by that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um and also it probably you could probably write essays and books and whatever about how how why it was marketed that way. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Because in a way it feels like it would be marketed towards a white audience. Yeah. 
in terms of making it out to be a comedy that this black man infiltrated the KKK. Like a lightweight sort of summer thing. Which it's not. It it Spike Lee. It's mm. it's um. I don't I don't want to use this word because it probably has a lot of negative connotations. Mm-hmm. But the best way I can describe it is a bit like a preach, right? In a good way. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Like I feel like um, the Five Bloods as well does this. Yeah. It's very it's very direct. Yeah, it talks to the audience almost. Yeah, because there, uh, there's a large section of this film which is just it's a um, it's a rally. Mm-hmm. It's just it's the speech from the rally played out fully. Yeah, there's no cuts or anything else. It's just the rally and everybody in the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so and I feel, I feel like because of because of that the fact that it's played out to be a comedy and get this such serious drama, mm-hmm. it's almost like a deflating effect. Uh, yeah, I agree. And uh... it's almost like a. I felt a bit ashamed. <laughs> yeah. Because, because I, I also, I watched this, I didn't watch this in cinemas. I, I just, it sort of slipped under the radar for me. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the trailer before it came out and thinking, oh, that was good, I want to watch that. Yeah. And then it just sort of flew under the radar for me when it did actually come out. Mm-hmm. So I watched it fairly recently, maybe a month or so ago. Mm-hmm. And I just felt a little bit ashamed in the fact that for so long I thought it was this bubbly comedy <laughs> Maybe even a bit of a buddy cop drama thing going on, but in in retrospect, it's a real, it's a cultural comment. Yeah, definitely. And it's so uh, much more serious and so much more impactful. Because once once you do get over the fact that it's not what you expect it to be, and you reach the final act, it's a really powerful film. Oh yeah, definitely. Especially yeah. when you get to like the the after the film where they show documentary footage of riots today. Mm-hmm. And it's barely a difference between then and now um sort of thing um and i yeah i agree with the idea that when you watch a movie the first time it's very much a deflating effect where for me i've seen the film twice now and the second time i loved it a lot more um and i think because the first time i watched it i i was watching it with the with the sort of the effect of i am watching a comedy and therefore reviewing reviewing it or being critical of it in those genre terms um, so when I watched it, I was kind of disappointed in some ways that it wasn't what the trailer said it was going to be. Um, so when I watched it, I was not disliking the film, but just being a bit off-putted by the idea that it wasn't what it was said it, said it was going to be, for the most part. Um, so I feel like it didn't. I don't. I don't. I don't want to say it lied to us because it. The film does has comedic points in it. Like there are some very much comedic. Yes, it's a black man in the kick in the kick here sort of thing, um, but it's yeah, it's a weird thing for me because in the first time watching, it, I was just so I was so much in the headspace of a comedy that when I was watching it, I had something completely different. I was not in sync with the actual movie I was watching, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but the second time I watched it, I, was very, I very much loved the movie and I really really loved it. Um, and it was because for, I was going into it with the, the right mindset, mm, uh, yeah. Compared to compared to the first time, and I think I would like to see it again with that, with knowing what it actually is. Yeah, that. Oh, yeah. It it helps a lot going in expecting what you want to get, like get. <laughs> and I feel like it speaks to a lot of the idea of um, marketing and the way it can 
shared in the way you think of think of a movie. Um, mm, yeah, like, and I think it's also very troubling that they did market it that way. Yeah, yeah, kind of. It's kind of a bit of a commentary on the actual system itself. Mm. <laughs> uh, a similar, somewhat thing. Not maybe the same subject matter, but a similar sort of experience to me was um, Age of Ultron, where I felt like the, the trailers were very much darker and serious and the comedy came out of very much the banter and not the actual the tone of the film um so i remember when i watched the film for the first time or even even since then i've been constantly disappointed by the fact that it isn't the darker sequel it's more so the same thing again <laughs> um uh, the edge of ultron kind of promises this idea of being a big the big uh midpoint of the franchise whereas the empire strikes back sequel sort of thing mm. um but it's not, honestly. It's more. It's a first movie, but again, and there's some more robots, <laughs> um, and that's kind of for the most part it. Um, yeah. So some some like a similar effect there, where the trailer sort of coloured in my actual reaction to the movie to begin with, um, which was sadness because it wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> um, Do you have another one? Uh, yeah, I have a. I don't think we talked about. Um, talk about this movie very much, but um, Indiana Jones 4, The Crystal Skull. Okay. Have you seen this film recently at all? Not recently. Not recently, but I do remember it quite well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, for me, uh, I don't want to hate this film. I don't think it's like the worst ever thing to happen. Uh, that being said, I feel like it's one of those sequels where you just didn't capture the first three movies like magic whatsoever. Like it's sort of like a hollow, a hollow sort of after effect sort of thing, where it feels like the highs of the first three movies are done again, but with less effect. Um, whether it's the actual actor Harrison Ford being kind of done with the entire thing, or Spielberg kind of leaning towards more modern technology, and therefore the sort of grounded action of the films kind of lose their effect. Like the amount of CGI ants or CGI gophers or CGI Shia LaBeouf swinging from swinging CGI from monkeys, CGI monkeys, yeah. Um, and even not even just like those big obvious moments, but even like the idea of like a a car chase in this in these movie in this movie isn't as exhilarating as the first three movies because it's so it's not obvious that it's in front of a green screen, but it has that sort of dig- digital effect on you where you're like. I'm not watching a real thing happen, um, <laughs> sort of thing. And aside from that, the actual the side characters in the movie don't really have a ever like a lasting effect on you. Um, they bring back the love interest, love interest in the first film, Marion, as a sort of remember this character sort of thing. And it's a sweet sort of romance, but I don't really feel like it really has a point of being there aside from the idea of nostalgic nostalgic value um Shiloh's character being the son of Indiana Jones is very much a okay like sort of thing uh, yeah, um I don't even hate the character I just don't think that it had that character has any sort of lasting um relevance or any sort of arc that feels relevant at all um John Hurt's in the film for a bit and he has nothing to do. Uh, there's a, a a British spy, triple, quadruple agent spy thing who has very little going on. Uh, suicide. Yeah, there's the villain is kind of a, it's a one-note villain, but not in a great, like, kind of 
uh, Belloc or um, the villain from the second movie kind of way. It's more of a Russian bad guy who is Russian and is a bad guy. You know, it's <laughs> it's sort of that very it's the Cold War. Yeah, definitely. And there are some really good moments in this film. I do think there are some great sequences. I think Harrison Ford, uh, for half the time, is very much the same. Not the same, but um, a natural continuation from the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't capture the same energy or tone or feeling whatsoever because it's so it's so comical in this movie for some reason. Like I think the first three movies have a very comical nature to them. Like there's a the sound effect of a the sound effect of a Indiana Jones punch is very much a an otherworldly otherworldly sort of effect, and the idea of the the physics doesn't really matter that much. Um, but for the most part, of this film it's all cartoon. It's I mean the the um, the fridge and the nuke situation is very much a famous thing now, but it sort of sets a, sets a tone for that movie of being it's the first few films again, but bigger and more stuff and more like kind of on the nose, I would say. Um, and the movie kind of loses momentum for me when you get into the second act, and it kind of just spins its wheels into kind of like we're just gonna do some general things <laughs> you know with the MacGuffin and mm. we're kind of going to throw it around and we're going to have some real not bad directed because Spiel- Spielberg he has a very great handle on the geography of the entire thing the sort of direction of it all um the characters are always at the, always at the forefront um but it is again in that it has this weird cartoony effect where it doesn't feel grounded to any sort of realism which is a big sort of buzzword at the moment like realism and i don't think it comes down to logic it's more just the idea of this like the characters doing things that are tactile and sort of grounded and bloody and mm-hmm. full of sort of like an effort takes a lot to do um sort of thing and compared to this um in this movie it doesn't feel that way at all for me um and also another point i didn't really realize until we, until very recently was um the characters' clothes don't really get any sort of mud on them or any blood or any sort of, like, anything like that. And I feel like this film as a whole has a very weird look to it where I don't believe anything I'm seeing. <laughs> it's glossy, but not in a, a meaningful way. It's kind of just... The characters are never really bloody or in dirt or there's never any crinkles in the uniforms. There's never... There's not much depth in the image for the most part it's very shiny um the whites are very overexposed sometimes um mm-hmm. cgi is also for the most part quite obvious um and the plot yeah it's not engaging in the same way the lost ark is or the uh the 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 the, the, the cup of the cup of christ is it doesn't have that same sort of like ethereal effect on us and there's had the most mystery to it, towards it. Because uh, um, Crystal Skull in this movie gets handed around between people for so long. It's so meaningless overall. Because keep on, like, the big plastic foot crystal, I guess, skull is um, handed between characters like a big, like, tennis ball sometimes. <laughs> it's like, people are like, oh, here you go. Here's the here's Crystal Skull, mate. It's so like, oh, hand it over to this guy because he can handle it for a bit. It's... Yeah, it doesn't have the same effectiveness, and I don't feel like the movie overall has the same weight to it at all. And it's mostly the filmmaking, not even like the actual script. It's mostly the film filmmaking. 
mm. it lacks that sense of momentum or stakes or danger. Like Indiana Jones's movie has no, he has doesn't really have any moments of weakness compared to the other movies. Um, there's always at least one or two or many even sequences where Indiana Jones is almost going to die. He's definitely, definitely going to die, but somehow he'll make it out and they'll play that fucking theme. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but compared to this movie where I can't remember one moment where he experienced any sort of actual danger of he's going to die definitely, like sort of thing. Um, it's very much ants walking, <laughs> kind of like CGA ants walking around him and comical sort of effect of like he's punched someone but he's kind of his hand hurts but he's gonna run away it's gonna be fine um the ending has no real physical element towards it it's all him walks into a room and he kind of leaves and that's it um the fight scene the one fight scene with the russian big guy has the closer we get to any sort of tactile nature of the film it's a bit more grounded and realistic and not comical it's an actual moment of like maybe any adult's gonna get his face kicked in here um, but again it lasts for too little and the effect doesn't last for very long of it um yeah how do you feel about this movie i think it's fine yeah same. that's the best way i can describe it like when it came out when i was younger i lapped it up i enjoyed it mm-hmm. as i've said before you know Little Kid Matthew is very hard to disappoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the wacky nature of it being a kid. In mm-hmm. that I've never, even, even when I was younger, I've never been bothered much by like practical or dodgy special effects. Yeah. Um, so I still sort of view it through that lens in a way. Yeah. But I do think it, I think it tries. It does try. <laughs> I think it, it tries to recapture the magic of the originals, mm-hmm. but I think it just it can't. <laughs> I feel like Indiana James is one of those things where you just I don't think you ever can recapture what they what they were. Yeah. Um, similar to like Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any attempt to add onto that universe now, it you just feel like you can't. It feels like a, a product of its time, but it's also timeless. But also, you can't do it again. <laughs> so mm. It's a very yeah. much thing, yeah. Um, and I think the, it's a very sincere attempt at trying to to recreate the originals, but it just doesn't. Like I think it plays too much on tropes for one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it, it, it plays on tropes without even knowing the tropes. I think. <laughs> yeah. Like obviously, when 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 the first ones were made. Mm-hmm. Certain aspects in there that are in there are not tropes, or weren't tropes then, mm. but maybe they are now. Yeah, and they're trying to do them sincerely because they were part of the original films. Yeah, but now because we do see them as tropes, mm. it struggles like like the whole evil Soviet Union woman. Yeah, it's like in the original you have these evil Nazis. <laughs> but yeah. now having having it just like a a generic evil person from whoever America hated at that point in time. <laughs> yeah. It feels something like it's something like Bond's done. Like all Bond's villains are German or Russian. Yeah. From the time. Yeah, and um yeah, it's 
it feels like it's attempting to be like a time capsule film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but... <laughs> it's like it's like it's like trying to it's like trying to you, you're telling a kid about a time capsule. Yeah. But you don't actually have a time capsule to dig up and show them, so you make what you think a time capsule looks like. Yeah, but you kind of get what half it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I feel like another point to make is the fact that uh, it kind of reminds me of Pirates of Caribbean 4 um, in the sense that it promises from the get go the return of the character and the return of the character to his original state. Um, and I feel like the first 20 minutes of Indiana Jones 4 is very much the highlight of the film. Mm-hmm. It's the return of the character, it's him being quite clever and smart, the, the magnets and all that, and the introduction of the idea of the crystal skull and the villain's sort of first scene. Um, it has some real en- energy to it. It has the first sequence that feels like an Indiana Jones action sequence. Um, and then, similar to the Piazza Caribbean 4, it has that opening, which is very much a fun, grounded introduction to the character again, and it works. And it has a sort of momentum to it. But then when the film has to go forward and have an actual plot of its own, it falls really flat and kind of just falls back into old tropes, old, all sort of, the all sort of ways of doing things, but without any sort of new energy to it. Because... Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's impossible to make Indiana Jones 5 or 4 or Pirate of the Caribbean 6, 6 that is good. I just feel like you need to update it in a way that's relevant to making a sequel at any point. Um, mm-hmm. Because of the, I think a great example is Uncharted 4, which is could have been another sequel that has the trademark and the tropes and the character again, but a bit older. Um, but Uncharted 4 is an important thing of actually making a story that's very personal. That story in Uncharted 4 is very much the first time we have some sort of personal weight to the actual MacGuffin or the plot mechanics. Yeah. Um, so I feel like if this film added that at all, would have been fantastic. And if the filmmaking stayed true to the practical nature of the entire experience and didn't have so many floaty, camera, floaty, floaty CGI camera movies or any sort of uh, comical sort of uh, sequences, it would have been much better and would have been perhaps a, a film that could have looked back on the actual trilogy and critiqued them in some way, the same way Uncharted 4 sometimes does. Mm. Um, but it just didn't. And it kind of just wanted to do another adventure, but without any sort of this thing that made it special to begin with, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to move on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got one more. Okay. I'm going to go for, I'm going to tell you about all right. Um, I, I started with one that I know you like. <laughs> so I'm going to end with one that I know that you like. Okay. I'm going to say Joker. Oh, okay. Okay. I've saved it for the end. Okay. Controversial. My last one. Mm-hmm. I really don't like Joker. Yeah, you hear it. <laughs> um, and the reason it's disappointing for me is that I love the idea of Joker. Mm-hmm. And it's something we're seeing a lot in the DC films. We've said it a lot in the past on the podcast. Yeah. This is a great idea of just doing a single film, focusing on one character, telling a story that you want to tell, and leaving it at that. Yeah. However, and, <laughs> and also, there are, again, I should say, there are, there are parts of this that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. 
I think visually it's a very attractive film. Yeah. Beautifully shot. The use of um, the CGI, the, the backdrop buildings, great. Mm-hmm. The world building is phenomenal. Joaquin Phoenix is great. Yeah. And I appreciate the fact it is a creative vision of one person. Yeah. However, I hate that vision. <laughs> yeah. I fundamentally disagree with what this, this film is trying to say. Um, I, so one of the things I keep coming back to about it is that I, I don't think, just to me, this is difficult because I always hate it when people criticise something mm-hmm. and they say, um, that's not my version of so-and-so. It happened a lot with Spider-Man. Right, yeah. You know, there's a lot of tox- toxicity when people say, I, I, hate, I hate Tom Holland, he's not my Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. not the Spider-Man. He, it's like this character isn't the character from the comics. Yeah, it happens quite a lot, mm-hmm. and I don't want to be that guy because I hate that argument. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like this sort of misses certain parts of the Joker that you would expect to have. Y- yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, this is personal to me, and I, I, I'm not. I'm not going to say it's a bad film. I'd never say. The film was bad. I just think that I personally disagree with it. I feel like it's really strange having this film and mm-hmm. not having Batman in there. Yeah. And it feels like Todd Phillips wants to tell this story about, about a downtrodden guy. Mm-hmm. But throughout the entire thing, it feels like the whole fact about him being the Joker is shoehorned in. Yeah, it, it feels It feels like they don't want to... It feels like they don't want to call it Gotham. It feels like they don't want to put in the parts about thomas wayne mm-hmm. and so much the, the so much so that when it comes to the end of this film and spoilers of course when when it gets to the point where thomas and martha wayne get shot in the alleyway yeah it just feels so insincere mm. it feels so forced mm. and I just, it just makes me think why have you chosen this this way to tell this story yeah and as, as well it also subtle it also suffers major problems to do with subtlety <laughs> oh yeah the film's not subtle at all yeah but yeah it's it's a very visual film in many ways mm-hmm. yeah. and you have the scene where he dances for about 15 hours in front of the mirror <laughs> um it's a very visual thing there's no dialogue there and points where he commits acts of violence yeah they're, they're silent scenes, but then you just have these dumps where he verbally tells you how he's feeling. Yeah, he does. Despite yeah. the fact we've already already seen it, and that the the best example I can give of that is at the end when he's on the talk show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he gives this monologue. Yeah, that's basically the recap of what we've seen, and it's like you've done all this work to build this up visually and to tell the story using this medium, just to have a massive exposition dump that tells us nothing new and just yeah, yeah. makes me feel a bit stupid. <laughs> it's like, I know this. I've seen the film. I've seen everything that comes before it. Um, yeah, and as well, I, there are certain points where I really, really hate the dialogue. Yeah. I think it's cringy, really cringy in certain points. There are some moments of just 
this is on the nose <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and it's really, I feel like it's really also really rather hypocritical mm. because Arthur Fleck hates this world. Yeah. Because the people of New York City are violent towards him, they're horrible towards him. Yet, who do you think it is that's causing these riots at the end? <laughs> it's not people who step down from their their multi-million dollar pads deciding, you know what, I have had enough of this. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I'm sort of torn between, like, I don't feel like that's an intentional bit of hip- hypocrisy. Yeah. I feel like that's, they've forgotten that. Mm. And, yeah. Um, also, he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Why's that? Because he just stumbles his way through the film. Oh, yeah, he does. It. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the joke is supposed to be the opposite of Batman. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. chaos to... Yeah, I just feel like... like chaos sort of thing. I just feel like Todd Phillips has had the idea of, oh, the Joker, he's a madman. Yeah. I'm going to make my story about being fed up with the modern world centred on him mm. without first maybe understanding... The I'm, not, I'm not, not saying that he doesn't understand Joker. He might be a massive fan of the Joker in the comics. Yeah. And he might understand him really well. I'm just saying that I feel that it doesn't come across that way. Yeah. It feels like... best way I can describe it is it feels like the idea of Joker and the Batman universe is being manipulated and forced into whatever shaped hole Todd Phillips wanted to fit into. <laughs> yeah, I think I can see that definitely. Yeah. Um yeah. For me, yeah, I I don't I don't think I, I love this movie. It's almost as I kind of like appreciate it. It's sort of like a a weird thing where I can be critical of this movie very easily. It is on the nose. It is it is a um, it is kind of it's just in your face and it's full of rage and anger and all these sort of things, but it's not in any sort of subtle um, give, it to, give, give to the audience what they think sort of way. Um, it, it all, it's all presented, presented through the idea of the Joker and his actual mindset. And it's often very much him just screaming into the void about something. Um, and I, I feel like the big problem with this movie for me, if I was going to give it like a one, would be the idea of like narrative framing and how it's from his point of view and how the movie kind of from that point of view, such as an obviously angry character, such as a depressed character, how it kind of frames the world as very much sometimes on his side a bit too much. Um, the film sometimes too much on his side of like this character who is going to kill people because he's sad, which is a bit too close to reality <laughs> in some ways mm. for America, especially. Um, and I do feel like the narrative framing device of having him be the actual voice of the story is somewhat problematic and also on the nose. Um, that being said, I kind of, the thing that I appreciate about it so much is the idea that it also, also is that, you know, like it kind of it has the balls to do that and be that in your face about it all. And I feel like the big reason this movie resonated with so many people, so many people, or at least affected people, so many people, was because it was it was that obvious. Um, and it was that sort of like anti-artsy um, sort of thing of like, oh, well, it's all going to be subtext and all this sort of thing. It was all 
either told to you or visually kind of just communicated to you by uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance. Um, was that, can we, Do we agree that his performance is, for the most part, very good? Oh, yeah, I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. I, I will agree that he completely commits to this. Oh, he, yeah, he, can be, he commits so hard. <laughs> I'll uh, always be able to appreciate that. Yeah. Joaquin Phoenix and the cinematography are the two things that... Mm-hmm. And the world building. Let's yeah. include that in cinematography in any way. Yeah. But those two things, I think, I will defend those things. Yeah. And I... Yeah, and I, I think we agree with that. And the idea that the camera work, for the most part, is very much subjective. It's very much in the frame of his mind, and even to the point where we just see, we don't entirely see uh, things as they are, because implied by the end of the movie that it could be all in his head, sort of thing, which sometimes can be very cheap. But I feel like for the most part, it's a bit, it's vague enough in this movie to be a bit kind of on, not so obvious, um, but. Yeah, I don't love this movie, but I just can't help but be like, damn, they made this, <laughs> like, sort of thing. And at the same time... It's, yeah. It's yeah. a film I feel like I... I can't say it's a bad film. Mm-hmm. I just disagree with it. <laughs> yeah. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. I, I mean, I disagree with it as well in some ways. I don't think that the ideas that it's pouring out are very are healthy ideas whatsoever. Oh, no, it's very toxic. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's so toxic, and it's, and the, I think like the criticism they can put towards that towards that criticism is the idea that film should reflect um, part the ugly parts of humanity as well as the good parts. But I feel like if a movie does reflect the ugly parts of humanity, it should do it in a way that is um, sort of like engrossing, or it's sort of kind of like it's excess for the sake of excess, and it's meant to be monotonous for the view because it's too much excess so it's like in that sort of way mm. um, yeah, it's like a, a lot of things that draw attention to the ugly parts of humanity do so in a way that it does still disapprove of that <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> yeah um and i feel like if a movie is going to if a movie and i'm talking very generally here i'm not talking about all movies but i do feel like in general i appreciate it a lot more if a movie 90 percent of the time reflects society or whatever you want to reflect and puts a very bleak out view on it. But I, I, if it's going to examine humanity and all these sort of things, I would much rather it would give some sort of semblance of the idea that there is an antidote out there in some way. Like, this is a problem that we have as humans. It's a problem of the human soul. It's a problem with mental um, mental issues or whatever. And this is pro- and I'm gonna, we're going to hint towards the idea of an antidote towards it, that we can do better. Um and that's not to say every film should do that. I just think that it's it's your your art or whatever feels a bit more personal and more um, like a useful thing in the world if you do that. Um, this film, however, doesn't doesn't really give any sort of idea of what we could do better. <laughs> um, it's kind of it just sort of revels in the darkness in a way. It does. It kind of just it goes about in self pity of itself sort of thing. Mm. It kind of just. And I think it does a great job of doing that. That's the thing I love about it. Is that it does a great job of having that effect on the viewer of the idea of a character who is so uh, full of self-pity and full of hatred for everyone around him, but not at the same time as himself. Um, and the movie, yeah, it is obvious. I mean, <laughs> for me, a great part was when they revealed the the girlfriend character wasn't actually his girlfriend. And instead of having any sort of um, hint, 
it's more like the the camera cuts towards him having the same situation but without her there and it's so it's it's it kind of read a bit funny to me i won't lie it was kind of like yeah i know i get it <laughs> sort of thing um and yeah it's a movie full of rage and darkness and hollow sometimes hollowness and it's general like the self-pity but i do feel like it's unique enough and it stands on its own enough to be a bit it is feel important to me and impressive in many ways especially mm-hmm. the music as well the music is great oh yeah yeah music as well <clears throat> yeah um i feel like we both have the same opinion on this, on this movie but i just like it more that makes sense <laughs> you know you know what i mean like i feel like yeah, you I know both what you mean. Opinion, but i like that opinion and you don't like that which is fair enough you know so. yeah yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Do you want to move on? Uh, yeah. Do you want to do? Uh, do to do one more? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so my last one is. I feel like I only really cared about this being such a disappointment recently, but the Hobbit movies are okay. Yeah. So disappointing to me because in the last like five years, I think I really still love the idea of the Lord of the Rings movies and. I rewatched them with my friends once and rewatched them by myself and for the first time watched the extend, extended editions and me too. Those, yeah, those, yeah those movies are to me like some of the most perfect things ever created and it ever happened uh, sort of things like they are miracles that happen three times over um, and they get better with each like rewatch for me um, they're incredibly personal they're important to filmmaking their great ideas and great greatly executed um but they're also anchored by such like great portrayals of humanity and just in general like hopefulness for the world and just great themes great characters everything that could be possibly great is great mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then moves to the hobbit which i don't think is devoid of any sort of merit but move to the hobbit where i feel like going from a going from a trilogy that was larger than life but so human and so uh meaningful for me and so many people that love those films as well and books um uh, going to a trilogy that is is one book that's very short stretch out to three movies that are three hours long for no reason other than money and it's clear that it's only for money is just like a a betrayal not only of a good movie but like a betrayal of the ideas of the first three movies that were um the idea the lessons that they were handing off to handing over to the audience um and making a movie that a trilogy that is just made for money and is all all flash and no real not barely any heart um uh is indicative of the idea that we need some we need we need more of the franchise because it's a franchise and it makes money uh and a great example for me is Bilbo Baggins in in those movies is the best part and he's never used to his full full advantage it's it's a great character who has a great opening and an arc in the first film but going from that has nothing to do at all uh, the dwarves similarly have a pretty solid start in that first film and then from then on have nothing to do and kind of just moves on about with the th- faintest idea of any sort of character arc or progression or ideas explored um to the point where the third movie and you could see this off the the return of the king movie as well but return of the king at least it was a three hour four hour movie that was mostly spectacle 
but these battles and these ideas of spectacle were always built up to with a great sense of tension, a great sense of character beats, and then the intermissions of these battles were always about the characters and about the world. Um, but you, when you go to the, the last Hobbit movie, it's four hours of just... It's all action. It's all just CGI, floaty, uh, floaty um, spinning around action. It's so weird to me. Because, um, especially when I go back and watch the first movie, is where you, um, the action is very much based on tension. Like there's so many points that movie, those movies where the accent isn't someone with a sword going crazy. It's more just someone with a sword hiding behind a hiding behind a big block so they won't get killed. And at the same time, they're getting arrows launched at them. And at the same time, the ring's going to tempt Frodo. And at the same time, there's orcs coming over. The, like there's so many different things are happening, but it's all mm-hmm. based on tension and cost and consequences. Um, but if you look at even one sequence from any of the Hobbit movies, it's all just really elegant. Yes, it is elegant, but it is all flashed. It's all just look at how good Gandalf is at using his staff now, and look at how good the elves are with their swords, and look at how many things we can render in a computer about orcs and stuff like that. Um, and a great example is they have padded out this, these movies with an entire an hour each movie has a subplot about Saruman or Sauron, sorry, Sauron coming back to life, which is obviously the prequel to the actual villain in the Lord of the Rings movies, but in the book that's not at all in it, and in the movie it's not even remotely um, affecting the plot at all. It's a subplot that means nothing, and it's only there because it kind of ties together the entire franchise in a neat little bore, and it promises that people will come into the movie expecting some sort of some sort of connection or some sort of like Oh, it's the thing we like from the other movies that's coming back, um, and it falls in so many ways. In so many ways, it just falls flat, really, really hard. And I, there's only there's many um, recuts where they take the three hour the um, the three movies into one movie that's like two hours long. And the fact that the fact that people for the most part have reviewed that version the best, and the fact that you can do that and it works tells you how much these movies are just not made with any sort of love or well, maybe that's not a good like good way of putting it, but made without the idea of making a worthwhile story other than money sort of thing. Um, mm. If you can turn a trilogy, like imagine the Donut trilogy. Imagine you could turn that trilogy into a two-hour one movie, and you get the same, even you get a better emotional effect from that. That's not good. <laughs> like that tells you that you're just had three movies that are four hours long for no reason. Um, so yeah, I feel like for me the emotional attachment I have to the first three movies really hurts me when I go back to these movies and realize that they are so empty for the most part. Like they are so empty. Um, have, do you feel like any sort of hatred towards these movies at all? <laughs> I have never seen them. Have you not? Don't. I've seen a lot of the Rings, but yeah. I, when it comes to the Hobbit films, I just look at them and think I can't do that again. <laughs> yeah, and like per- personally to me, the story is a prequel, isn't it? Hobbit's a prequel. Yeah, it's a prequel. Yeah, I just look at it and I think I I don't care about story. Mm. Yeah, maybe maybe it, like, if you'd had made one film, mm-hmm. I might be yeah sure why not? Mm. Let's give it a go. If it's bad, then I'll just watch one film. Yeah, if it's good, then I'll I'll have had a great time. Yeah. 
two, three three hour long movies. They're all for quite a prequel. <laughs> yeah, I like feel a, like a little too much for me. Yeah, and then at least with the prequels, like the Star Wars prequels, at least that they are travel movies that are entirely original and therefore can do whatever they want and can have a two-hour story of that makes at least somewhat sense to be. Yeah, well, it's you know with those Star Wars prequels, it's it's not the story itself that's necessarily the problem. You know, there is a story there. Yeah. But the world there, but I just feel like for the Hobbit films, there's nothing that grabs me and wants me to watch them. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's nothing really. It it has some good ideas within it. It has some generally heartwarming moments. It has some great music. It has it has even some great visuals. Um, it's just it's so empty. It's just like watching. It's like watching the same movie again from The Lord of the Rings, but imagine someone ripping the heart out and just having the spectacle there. Um, it's good spectacle. It's definitely some of the best we've ever seen, even. Um, and I, like a kind of like a a, a a mark of Hollywood, like in general, like how like a it was before Lord of the Rings and after after Lord of the Rings. Um, but without that heart, or without those characters, or without that succinct sort of plotting and lean stories that have narrative momentum and have all these sort of great um, themes and ideas. You just have an empty nine-hour movie trilogy (laughs) uh, which has ten dwarf characters that are main characters, which I cannot tell you one of the names at all. There are are ten dwarfs in in these movies uh, and I think like eight of them have a gimmick character like they're all this character's got big ears this one's got a i don't know it's got basically the seven dwarfs yeah <laughs> yeah especially like essentially that yeah um there's two dwarves that have actual characters to them and even then it spreads so thin over nine hours <laughs> um yeah i hate these movies so much and i kind of i hate them yeah ah <laughs> uh, don't move on <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that brings us to a close. Oh, okay. Oh, been a big one then. <laughs> it has. It's been nearly two hours. Yeah, it's disappointment over and over again. There's <laughs> mm-hmm. only so much disappointment you can put in one episode. Yeah, about depressing anyone. Maybe maybe we'll be able to do another uh. of these <laughs> because there's yeah. never there's never a short supply. Never is for some reason. <laughs> it's Hollywood's trademark making disappointing movies. Well, uh, if we didn't have the disappointing ones, we wouldn't have the good ones. True. It's true. a lot of scale. Perspective. It's a balance. It's a balance. <laughs> <laughs> right. So do you answer that? Yep, go ahead. Take us home. Right. So you have been watching the Marvel to Know podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We have an Instagram called at Marvel to Know podcast, where at the moment we're doing Star Wars reviews. Um, and just at the same time, random reviews of whatever we happen to watch um also we have a twitter account at cinema marvelous essentially doing the same thing over there um so yeah if you want to have any reviews come out you daily you can just follow us on either one um yeah i hope you enjoyed i've been one your co-host henry and this would be my other co-host yep uh, yeah yeah matthew yep. <laughs> yep thank you i've been here <laughs> yeah so i hope you enjoyed goodbye bye bye